okay. Whoops. I'll just send you the mp3 and you can listen to the mp3 if you ever have to miss I know sometimes that happens we have a couple of folks who got their second dose of vaccine and they weren't feeling so good so they're missing tonight and then one of our other folks had cataract surgery so she's missing tonight so why don't we go ahead and uh, just begin in prayer ask the Lord to bless our time together so that we can open be open to all that um, he wants to give us in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we just are so grateful to you for all of your wonderful gifts. Today, for the wonderful gift of your beautiful weather um, that you've given us, the reprieve from the heat. We are so grateful. Lord, we thank you um, for our lives, for our families, for um, the great loves that we have in our life. Um, we are so grateful for those gifts. And so be with us tonight, Lord, as we talk about theology and philosophy, what that means, um, who we are, what our purpose is, and then help us, Lord, to continue to persevere, to reach our destiny, um, who is you. Bless us all, Lord, and I ask this as I ask all things through Christ our Lord. Amen. amen. Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, amen. So a couple of things we didn't really go over the first or second night that I just wanted to point out to you um, in case you were wondering. In your binder, you all have a binder. In the pocket is the schedule. And so just to let you know that there is a schedule. And so um, there is already delineated what we're going to be doing for most weeks. And so it's pretty straightforward. The pages that you should read for the night that that topic is happening are present there. And the pages that you're reading are actually in the catechism, so the big blue book that we gave you. Um, so those are the pages you're called to read. I usually remind you of that when I send you your email. And then a lot of people picked up that um, there's something called BOW that starts in November. <laughs> Cindy's our, Cindy runs our BOW, so she wants to make sure you have that. So BOW is Breaking Open the Word. And Breaking Open the Word is when we start to go to Mass together. And so we'll be at Mass together um, at the 11 o'clock Mass. We sit together. Your family and friends can join you um, when we do that. But then we're going to get dismissed after the homily. And then we go into the activity building or PLCA if it's open. Usually we have coffee and donuts, but, um, and you're going to discuss the gospel. Since you're not receiving Eucharist, um, you know, it's, it's fine for you to stay at Mass and not receive Eucharist, but we want to kind of break open the word, kind of get a little bit more in depth about what 
kind of the Catholic sense of scripture is, how we read the Bible, some of the meaning that we can, um, we can draw from that. So BOW is usually a great favorite. And so um, Cindy and the team will be running that on a weekly basis. So that'll be kind of like small group. You finish BOW at the same time that um, church finishes. So finish up around 12 o'clock. We usually have coffee and donuts for you, so I know you'll enjoy that as well. Um, then there's, um, there's a couple of blue um, ink titles. Those are Sunday catechesis that we're asking you to attend, and you'll be attending those instead of BOW that week. And so um, those are family catechesis that we do for the entire parish um, on like three or four times a year. And so we're going to gather as a parish community. Usually we'll have a dessert in here on a Sunday afternoon. Then we go over to the church and we'll listen to a, a talk. And then um, sometimes there's adoration, singing. But it's usually about an hour and a half, just like our class will be. The breaks are identified in here as well, so you can um, note those. And there's also sponsor meetings. There's a couple sponsor meetings. So the sponsor meetings, um, the first one is going to be on, there's one on February 16th. The first one I think is in October. Oh, it's on November 17th. So if you haven't chosen a sponsor by that time, um, we're happy to um, appoint one for you. If one of the team members is someone that you'd like to ask to be your sponsor, that's a great idea as well. Um, but that's a good idea to have your sponsor by that time. And um, a sponsor, you know, is somebody that's really, because the church can't sit next to you in the pew, we like to assign someone who is a strong Catholic that is going to accompany you on this journey. And so there's somebody that is a practicing Catholic that's been fully initiated into the church, so they've been confirmed in the church. They go to church regularly, they're involved in the church. And, um, and they're, you know, they're not a theologian or anything like that, but they're somebody that can, you know, help you in your Catholic walk, okay? And um, then we do have a retreat. The retreat is in April, and the retreat happens on a Saturday. And so please um, make sure that you have that, um, you know, set in your calendar. I know a lot of times there's weddings planned, you know, weekends out of town planned. So try to put that aside so that you're able to attend the retreat. It is actually mandatory. I know sometimes things happen, but um, so just see me if, if there's an issue with the retreat. The retreat is a day in which we pray together. We have speakers come in and speak to you. For those of you who are baptized, it'll be the, the day that you receive your first sacrament of the church, which will be confession. So we'll, we'll prepare you for that. So don't fret about it yet. The rest of this binder really is additional materials that you probably won't read when you're in RCIA, you're welcome to. It's divided just like the catechism is into the four pillars of the church. So every time we have a topic, you can go in here and read a couple of additional things about that topic. The four pillars are in here. Um, something on the commandments and the Beatitudes are in here. Something on the church. There's something on Jesus Christ. You know, did Jesus know he was God? I mean, there's some questions in here that are that are answered by different articles. So I'd like to give this to you because at some point, you know, you're gonna have additional questions and this is a good place to look back, so don't throw it away. It's a great place too to put any handouts that the speakers may give you as well. So um, 
Questions? Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Cindy, thanks you. So there is always a sacred space that is placed here, and Cindy takes great pains to kind of put into pictorial format the topic that we have at hand. And so to help you to try to understand more deeply what it is that we're studying. And so tonight she's got the board um, on theology and philosophy. And so she's got St. Thomas Aquinas up here, who's our great theologian. She's got some beautiful um, pictures. So take a look at this when you come and grab a bag of chips. And, um, and the famous quote about what theology is, faith-seeking understanding. Yes, and so she's got all these little pearls of wisdom. Faith-seeking understanding, that's what theology is. So listen for that when Tommy tells you about that. Yes, they'll be here with you. And usually I like to cover something that, um, that you know, they, they should know a lot about. And so I like to kind of go deeper on, on that. Like the first one's going to be the mass. And so we'll go a little deeper on Anything else? Yes, I don't know if you've already talked about this, but I'm just curious about the, like, some of those questions that you might have always had about the Catholic faith that, um, you know, you've just forgotten to ask or 
nobody's been able to answer them. So we got a, a couple of really good questions. So the first question was, what's the sign of the cross? Where did it come from? And why do we do it? And then why do we genuflect and do all that kind of stuff, those gyrations in mass, you know? And so, um, so great question, right? The sign of the cross is actually one of the most ancient signs of the Catholic faith. It was kind of a way in which Christians could recognize each other in the early church. It's apostolic in its origin. So it goes all the way back. And, and it basically is a prayer in and of itself. The sign of the cross It's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so basically we are saying, you know, this is what I believe in. I believe that God is a communion of persons. God is Trinity. God is love. Um, that, you know, I believe um, in the triune God. And so, um, so it's a prayer in and of itself. When we are in church and we have holy water, we don't have holy water right now because of COVID, um, and we dip our fingers in the holy water and then we do the sign of the cross, it's a reminder of our baptism to whom we belong, right? We belong to, to, to God. We're made for God. He is our destiny. And then um, the idea that baptism has made us his. Baptism incorporates us into the church. And so, sign of the cross is, is very ancient, um, and it was given to us um, in apostolic times. Now, different um, rites may do the sign of the cross differently. So, for the Roman rite, which is what you are um, entering into, you know, it's in the name of the Father and the Son, and then we go to the left, and then to the right. Okay, and so the Eastern Church does it different. They go to the right first. It's fine. It's absolutely fine. So, um, so if you mess that up, don't worry about it. And then, of course, after we, um, you know, the priest is about to proclaim the gospel. I think we might have talked about this the first time. Um, the Lord be with you. And we say, and with your spirit. And he says, a reading from the Holy Gospel according to Matthew. And all the Catholics go, mm -hmm. <laughs> You have no idea what they're saying, right? Uh, and so... Well, it's another derision or derivative of the sign of the cross. And, I, and whenever I'm going to say it, I can't even remember. Glory be to you, O Lord. Is that what we're saying? Glory to you, O Lord. Glory to you, O Lord. And so this, these things were, were basically, you know, I've heard people say, you know, we want God's word to be in our mind, on our lips, and in our heart. Okay. And so that's, that's kind of the, the meaning behind that. Uh, glory be to you, O Lord. And so we all mumble it, so I know nobody knows what we're saying. So no wonder everybody thinks we just talk gibberish when um, so, um, so that was a great question. I love that question. Um, and then I got some really great questions. Um, what are the origins of the Catholic Church? Were all Christians during the time of Jesus' life Catholic? Um, so during Jesus's life, of course, his followers were mainly Jews, right? And then the gospel was proclaimed to the Gentiles. So Jesus was a Jew. Um, but Christ means the anointed one. So that wasn't Jesus's last name, right? Jesus Christ, he, he, that's the, it's the it's an identity that he was the anointed one. The Christ is the anointed one, the Messiah. And so, um, so Christianity came to be um, after the resurrection and ascension of Christ back to the Father. So this is when Christianity is initiated. And so, um, so the Christian community, yes, was Catholic. 
until really the 1600s. And so were there um, heretics or people that turned away from the faith, maybe taught a different gospel? Yeah, and there's some, there's some names. Um, there's monotheism. Um, there's so many different uh, Donatists. So there's so many heretical sects that kind of grew up during the early church, but they've, you know, they kind of, you know, went away by the wayside. And then there was the first big split in the, in the Catholic Church in 1095. The Eastern and the Western uh, Catholic Church kind of split over the creed, the filioque, and I'm going to let somebody much more able to um, speak about that, probably Stuart, when he talks about his um, the church history. And so that was probably the first split, right, in the Catholic Church. But the difference between, the reason I say the 1600s is because we actually still recognize the Eastern Church's sacraments, their liturgy. So our theology is very similar, right? And so the sacraments are, are, are legitimate. The difference, the main difference in the Eastern and the Western churches is the authority structure. They have patriarchs and we have a pope. Okay, and so, so you'll learn a little bit more about that. But yeah, there was, you know, this was pretty much one church until the 1600s. And then we have those differentiations of, the, um, of Christianity at that time, which is pretty amazing when you think about it. So the, the oldest Protestant church is 500 years old. That's pretty amazing, right? Um, and so, and so we'll talk more about that as we go. But that was a great, great question. So thank you so much. And if you ask Siri who started the Catholic Church, she will tell you it was Jesus Christ. <laughs> she will tell you that. So it must be true. It must be true. Um, and so, um, so that was a great question. This is a big question. Um, but I, I love it. And so I'm just going to give you a few things. It's a huge question. It's really a lot about what we're going to be talking about all year. What are the principal differences in the teaching of the Catholic Church and those of Protestant denominations? Huge question, right? And so, so let me just give you a few of the biggies, right? I think number one, we talked about kind of the first night, is really an understanding of the Bible and how we look at the Bible, right? Most Protestant denominations are evangelical, which means based on the gospel. So it's, it's, it's sola scriptura, you know, Bible alone. And so Catholic Church, of course, is, is scripture and tradition because we believe tradition actually gave us the scriptures, right? And so there was a church before there was a Bible. And so tradition has given us the scriptures. And so, so it's both. So that's, that's a really big one. The second really big one is authority. There's a total, if you get the idea that there, there was an authority that was established by Jesus Christ, you have to be Catholic. You know, because, um, because in so many um, Protestant denominations, the reason why there have been the, the split-offs is because people disagree and they start another church. And so, but when you have a centralized authority that says this is what the Christ gave to the church, then, you know, we can argue about it, and we do, right? You, you hear it all the time. Um, but, but there is a teaching that has been given. And when you're Catholic and you say amen to the Eucharist, you're saying amen to what the church teaches and believes. 
And so that's such a beautiful gift. The authority of the church is such a wonderful gift that we've been given. Um, and so, um, so authority is huge in the church, and we'll have a whole evening on church and authority. I think salvation and grace, we could say. I think, you know, I think we've got, come such a long way with all the different Protestant denominations and, and the Catholic Church, particularly, I think, the youth, Lutheran and Anglicans, that we, we all believe that we're saved by grace, okay? That it's grace, it's, it's Christ's grace that saves us. Um, but the church believes that Christ also calls us to participate in that. And so it's not faith alone. You know, it, it's, it's, it's faith and works. And that's very biblical, right? That's what St. James says in, in, in the book of St. James, right? That, you know, your, your faith without works is dead. What must I do to attain eternal life, says the rich young man. And Jesus doesn't say, just believe in me. He says, follow the commandments. And so, so salvation and, um, and grace, the way we are saved. And we're going to have two separate um, topics on that as well. And then I think um, the last two are really, number one, that we're a sacramental church, right? We have seven sacraments. We believe that Christ instituted them all. And um, we believe that actually the idea that we have seven sacraments and that they're they're pretty clearly illustrated in sacred scripture and that these sacraments are ways that in which the mystery of Christ's life is made accessible to us here and now. And so the sacraments are Christ's gift to us. We believe that there's seven. Most churches believe there's one, but even in the one sacrament, it's often a sign versus a participation in divine life. And so it's, it's a different kind of understanding of that. And then, um, and then some, other, some, um, some churches do believe that marriage is a sacrament, um, but again, it's, it's very different, which again, I think points to this differentiation, right, in, in our belief and how, you know, wh why is it different? So many people have become Catholic because there's like, you know, well, why do you say that and you say that? You know, isn't there like, isn't there a truth? that's been given, and we say, yes, there has. There is a truth that's been given. And then lastly, I think um, the last thing is, is that we venerate the saints. We honor the saints. Um, for us. No, 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 no. And then I saw Tommy just go down the hall, so I'll Hey, 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 hush, hush. Don't ruin it. I don't want you to have to leave. No, no. When do Catholics get baptized? So what's the answer of that? Soon as you can. Soon as you can. And so, um, so we believe that baptism really and truly does something. And so as soon as we know that, we want to be baptized and we want our kids baptized, right? Because we believe that baptism is again an incorporation into Christ's body, the church, it's a reception of the grace that was lost in original sin. And so we want that for our babies, right? 
You don't have to do anything to be baptized. You, all you have to do is receive God's life, and the families have the faith. They bring that faith forward. And so, um, so those were great questions. Um, I really appreciate them. I hope you won't mind. I'll say Mary Margaret and, and Corey brought those forth for us. So thank you so much. And I still have a couple more of yours, so I'll start with next time with that. So, um, so Tommy, I'm going to introduce you now. We're so glad you're here. Um, Tommy is a great friend of St. Michael the Archangel Catholic Church. And um, he, uh, he's well-versed with the RCA program. He teaches for me in adult confirmation as well as RCIA. Um, he has been at Strike Jesuit forever. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and you are working on your doctorate now, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so is this education or? Education, uh, Catholic school leadership, yeah. Catholic school leadership, which is really cool. And um, so Tommy is just a great model for our young men over there at Strike Jesuit and um, great model for us. And so we're grateful that you're here to talk to us about theology and philosophy. And yeah. later on, you'll talk about the commandments. Us, yeah. Know that this is working. I Can you hear, hear me okay? There. Okay. Yeah. You know, I think it'll be okay. I really just want this to pick up. You've, you've got a pretty good voice. Yeah. Is My it? mom says I can be heard over a hurricane. So, yeah. <laughs> okay, good. I just really want the recorder to pick it up. So All right. Excellent. I think that's good. All right, okay, Tommy, cool. thank you so much. Well, thank you, Mary. Um, yeah, I, I, my students didn't believe me when I said that exactly how loud I can be. We were on retreat at our retreat leadership center, which is located up near Madisonville. And at the very top of the hill is where the chapel is located. And we have a big bell. You know, it's like the old timey bell. You know, pull it and, you know, eventually it starts ringing. Well, I guess over the summer, mud daubers had gotten in there and basically soldered the ringer to the side of the bell and it wouldn't ring. So from the top of the hill, I said, just shouted, bring it in! And you could hear it echoing all over. <laughs> and so one of the boys who's also in my senior class this semester said, that was impressive. <laughs> so if you could impress an 18 year old uh, young man, I guess that's, that's saying something. Okay, uh, well, let's start everything as we should start off with a prayer. Uh, because we know this work comes from God, not from us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. This is a prayer uh, for generosity attributed to St. Ignatius of Loyola. Lord, teach me to be generous. Teach me to serve you as you deserve, to give and not to count the cost, to fight and not to heed the wounds, to toil and not to seek for rest, to labor and not to ask for reward, save that I'm knowing that I do your will. Amen. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, it's very good. It's always nice to be with RCIA groups. Uh, I was telling somebody at work that I was coming out to St. Mike because they were like, why are you here so late? I said, well, I live in Katy, so it's a lot easier for me just to stay at Jesuit and come over here rather than fight traffic twice in an afternoon. And I said, I'm going, said, oh, you're going to have to go give a talk after teaching all day? I said, yeah, but these people actually are excited about hearing what I have to say. <laughs> so that, that, that is a little different. Um, 
This is talk about theology and philosophy. And Mary usually has me give this talk every year. And so each year I kind of tweak it up a little bit. Um, and I don't know about you, but this is one of those subjects that I could give a whole, you know, seven, eight lecture uh, series on, or we could get the little 10 minute Reader's Digest version. But so I'm trying to thread that needle right in the middle of not going too long where everybody is going into a coma uh, with too much information, but yet not just doing such a basic job that we really don't hit on some of the important stuff. So let me put this away. So uh, what I thought I would do is try to touch on what they are. Uh, how many people here have taken a theology or a philosophy course? Oh, good. We've had a number of people take. Good. Um, I don't know about you, but going in, but I remember when I started at the University of St. Thomas for my undergrad, as I love to tell my students, last century. Um, <laughs> You know, I remember I, you have to take theology and philosophy. I had little idea what I actually major in the things, you know. But I just thought, you know, philosophy. You know, those are those guys that just kind of sit around and think things. You know, they, they just sit around and go, you know. And, you know, to me, I just thought that was just way too above me. Uh, same thing with philosophers. You, know, you, you picture like the Sadducees and the Pharisees arguing points of you know, uh, doctrine and, and, and that sort of thing. If you've ever seen uh, the series The Chosen, you get some of that in there with the Pharisees and the Sadducees dressed in all their robes and all that. And so I guess part of my job tonight is trying to maybe just demystify it a little bit, bring it down to earth, and, and talk about what it is. And basically, philosophy and theology, when you get right down to it, are a uniquely human pursuit. Only humans do philosophy and theology. We don't see great philosophical and theological works written by dogs or cats, as beautiful and cute as they are, uh, or dolphins, as intelligent as they are. I love the, the welcoming crew, by the way. She was, she was very kind and welcoming me warmly. Um, and I think she remembered me from last time, yeah. Um, anyhow, uh, but we don't see these great works of you know, philosophy and theology. But ever since early human beings emerged from you know, the caves, and looked out at the stars, they wondered, why? What is it? If you've ever, you know, met a toddler who's just learned the word what, you will know you've got a budding philosopher. What is that? What is that? Well, they want to know the names of everything. They've always been curious. Now they're able to ask. We as human beings are incredibly curious. And that's a good thing as long as that curiosity is directed towards the right things. Curiosity can also get us into a lot of trouble. But when curiosity is directed towards its purpose and why God gave it to us, it is a very good thing. Our curiosity is geared towards helping us to find the truth. That's the only thing really worth knowing, isn't it? Is the truth. And so we ask questions. We evaluate the answers that we get. We test hypotheses. In many ways, it's a lot like a scientific pursuit. 
We have a question. We have a hypothesis. We test that hypothesis. We judge the test, observe the results, and then we reformulate the hypotheses. And then we kind of come up with theories. Um, and so this never-ending quest of who am I? Why am I here? What is the purpose of life? Is this all there ever is? These are the kind of questions that in those quiet moments when we get by ourselves, we ask ourselves, and that is a good thing. You can hardly talk about philosophy without talking about the great Greek philosophers, you know, Plato, Aristotle, Socrates. Um, the most, uh, Socrates had the most famous method for teaching, which is named after him, which is the Socratic method. And the Socratic method consists of, guess what? Asking questions. Because Socrates was convinced that the truth was already in us, we just had to ask the right questions to find it. It's not the most efficient way of teaching, I will tell you, but it is the best way of teaching. When you take a student and you ask him a question, or her a question, I say him because I teach only boys. Um, you ask him a question and he'll say, you know, well, what about that? And you say, well, what about that? And you keep, and they get a little, just give us the answer. I said, I want you to discover it because you're not always gonna have a teacher with you, but you'd always ask yourself, then what? Then what? Then what? So Socrates is the one to come up with that. Plato is perhaps the most famous student of Socrates, and he wrote a book of dialogues featuring Socrates in these verbal debates with his opponents. And of course, Aristotle was a student of Plato, who was a tutor to Alexander the Great. Not a bad student. I bet you he had no problem affording tuition. So uh, anyhow, and he wrote num numerous books and prophets. But it was Plato who first came up with the idea that there's something beyond this physical world that we can see. Uh, some people call them platonic ideas. And what that means is he says, like we look at the, the I forget your dog's name again? Joy. joy. We look at Joy, she, she recognized her voice. Uh, we see Joy and we realize that Joy is a dog, but we realize she's just an example of a dog. Right? She's, she's an example of a dog. But there is, there's this concept of dog that none of us have ever seen or ever had direct encounter of, but we know is out there. And we know that Joy is an example of a dog, but I could take a little chihuahua, right? And we know that's also a dog, even though they look very different. So what is it about an animal that makes it a dog and not a cat? And Plato talked about these, these, these platonic forms, these, these ideals. And of course, that opened the whole realm up into what is beyond us? What is in the supernatural realm? What is in the, uh, since they were Greek, they would have said the metaphysical, beyond the physical realm. Later, Aristotle built up the ideas of Plato, and he came up with the idea that there must be, and I won't take you through the whole logical argument, there's got to be at least one all-powerful being who is the source of everything, who himself was uncreated. Now, this is a man who lives in a polytheistic culture. He would have been swimming in the Greek gods 
every day on all the buildings, all the shrines, all the temples, all the incense. And yet he says, if these gods are real, Zeus and Athena and Hera and Hephaestus and all these others, they, have, they cannot all be eternal, the one source of everything. Even they had to have a source. And that one source must be the one prime source of all else that exists. So that was pretty good for somebody who was living, oh, I got the dates for, I don't have it memorized. Like, like Einstein, I don't look up anything. I, I don't memorize anything I can look up. Aristotle, so he's 3rd century BC. Not bad for 3rd century BC guy, right? Well, it kind of got left there. And once we get to the Christian era, a lot of people were afraid to do philosophy with the Greek philosophers because they didn't want to, they felt like doing philosophy with the Greek philosopher was tainted because these guys were pagans. Thomas Aquinas comes along in the 13th century and says, you know what? Good thought is good thought. Now, I don't have to agree with the, you know, that he believed in many gods, but I can take the logical, philosophical path that he has forged and using what we know from the light of revelation, bring new light to it. And so Thomas Aquinas was a Dominican priest. Like I said, he lived in the 13th century and he's perhaps one of the greatest theologian and philosophers in the Western world. Um, Today, his, his theology is, is central to any Catholic theologian's training. If you get out of doing theology without reading the Summa, you really haven't done theology. Um, and so he came up with building on Aristotle these five arguments for the existence of God. Now, these aren't arguments that are going to take somebody who is a non-believer, an atheist, and convince them, oh my gosh, God exists. No, but it, what it does is it gives reasonable credibility on why belief in God is not foolish. And so one of them, the first one, was his argument from motion. His argument for motion goes pretty simple. Uh, using more modern analogy, You've probably seen a YouTube video or something where there's like these domino contests, right? Where, you know, they have these big things, thousands of dominoes laid out and somebody pushes the first one and it does. They're mesmerizing to watch. But imagine you come into the room while somebody is already watching it and you see it on the screen and you see those last three dominoes fall. Well, you know instinctively that you came in at the end, right? That that there had to be a first domino that got set in motion however many dominoes back, how many hundreds or thousands of dominoes back. And we know that dominoes, unless acted upon by an outside force, don't move themselves, all right? Maybe a gust of wind came by, maybe somebody walked past and actually knocked one over, but they don't just simply topple over by themselves. Somebody had to get that first domino in motion. And so Thomas Aquinas looked around the world. He says, the world is in motion. We can know that the, by his time, he knew about planets, you know, uh, move throughout the sky. They weren't exactly sure at that point whether or not that was, you know, heliocentric or earthly centric. But 
they knew that planets moved across the sky. They knew that the, you know, the sun moved across the sky. Things were in motion. They didn't get in motion by themselves. There's nothing to explain why a star would move or why a planet would move or rotate. And so there had to be something to set it in motion. So something set it in motion and that thing was set in motion by the thing before that. And Thomas realized, using Aristotle's philosophy, this set of movers cannot go back infinitely into the past. Because if it's an infinite set of movers into the past, there's no way for the process to get started because there's always another step. There has to be one step where it all starts. And that prime mover that sets the entire universe into motion is God. Now, Plato said it was some all-powerful pre-existing being, all right, who himself was not moved. He called him the unmoved mover. Aquinas says, we know from Revelation that unmoved mover is God. Now, the argument from cause is very similar to it, and that is everything is caused by something. I was caused by my parents. My parents were caused by my grandparents. So we could keep going back. This could get really repetitious and I'd get on to the great, great, greats and all that kind of stuff. <clears throat> it is kind of fascinating though. My uncle on my mom's side of the family is a professional genealogist. They got the Mormons from Salt Lake call him all the time when they have questions on things. And he's traced my mother's side of the family back dozens of generations. And when you see that tree, you realize, gosh, if one of those people like died of a heart attack early, I probably wouldn't be here or at least wouldn't belong to this family. All right. And it is kind of fascinating. But we all know that just as with motion, nothing causes itself. Something cannot come from nothing. Things will just pop into existence out of nothing. There has to be something that causes something else. Well, just like with the infinite chain of movers, you cannot have an infinite chain of causes because then the causation cycle never gets started. So Aquinas, again, building on Aristotle, said that there has to be one first cause that itself is uncaused who had to exist in order to set everything else into existence. And so that one first cause of everything was itself uncaused. And that uncaused cause is God. The argument from possibility and necessity. Now this one's a little trickier and so I'll try to make this a little bit simpler because it uses a lot of specific philosophical language. Aquinas says there are things that can exist, which he called possible existence. And then there is another type of existence called necessary existence, something that has to exist. Does this podium have to exist? No, at one point it didn't. It's existed for a long time because I've been talking here for a number of years and we've always used this podium. So I know it's existed for a long time. All right. Not as long, probably, as my career at Jesuit. But this is this podium has existed. But at one point it did not exist. At some point, somebody manufactured this podium 
And as good and as well built as it is, it's not going to last forever. Eventually, we're going to have to recycle it or upcycle it to do in something new. And it'll become a dresser or a bureau or a coffee table or maybe something to kindle a fire and we roast marshmallows on. But it's not going to always exist. So it comes into existence at some point and it's going to go out. That's possible existence. Everything in the universe that we know has possible existence. The mountains. We know that they seem like they last forever to us, but we know from our own science that mountain ranges didn't always exist as they are now, nor will they exist like that forever. Things that are mountains now could become valleys in you know, thousands of years from now. And so not even the mountains have necessary existence. And Aquinas, sort of like his argument from causes, says that if everything in the universe had a possible existence, nothing could have ever come into existence. There has to be one being that is necessarily must exist in order to bring things that have possible existence into existence. And that was his third argument. Now, my, my favorite one is the argument from degrees of perfection. And this is, we can take and have a contest. Let's say we wanted to find, I'm Italian. So let's say we wanted to find out what is the absolute best pizzeria in Houston. And we would all have our opinions, right? Now I'm not talking about, okay, is who likes pepperoni and who likes the fruit on their pizza? If you want to get a conversation going, you know, that's one of the questions I get my students going on, you know, pineapple on pizza, tragedy or genius, you know, discuss, you know, and then you would, you almost have knocked down drag out arguments over that question. So I'm not, let's, let's eliminate all personal bias. Those who like cheese only to those of us who like everything but the kitchen sink on a pizza. And just say, we're going to narrow it down. Let's just pick a random topping, sausage or pepperoni, whatever your pick is. And we find the three top pizzerias. And we ask them to make us their best pepperoni or sausage pizza. And we go through with the blind taste test. You know, we're measuring it for, you know, the, the, the oiliness versus the crispiness. Is it floppy and soggy or is it nice and crispy? Uh, is it, you know, is there's a good cheese to sauce ratio? However you want to do it. But eventually we could say, okay, this pizza, while good, is not as good as this one right here. But of all three of them, this one is the best, right? Remember? Plato's platonic forms, in our minds, we know there's that ultimate pizza out there that we've never, ever experienced directly. But if we did, we know we would see it and the angels would sing and we would just be amazed at, at the quality of this pizza. Although we've never experienced that ultimate pizza, we know this one's closest to it. This one's uh, not so close. And this one is the furthest away from that as the three that we have. This is called degrees of perfection. Thomas Aquinas says that we judge everything in, in, senses, in three basic areas. I'll just pick three. Good, true, and beautiful. Something is good, better, best in the case of the pizzas, right? Something is 
true, truer, the truest, right? And then, of course, we can have things that are beautiful, even more beautiful, the most beautiful of all. And Thomas Aquinas argued that the only reason we are able to say this pizza is better than that one is because we have a sense of goodness, ultimate goodness, to which we compare everything that is good or everything that we perceive to be good. <clears throat> Even though we've never encountered it directly, we know that this one is closer. And so that ultimate good, that ultimate truth, that ultimate beauty is God. Because we are drawn to goodness and truth and beauty because we are drawn to God. Because God made us for himself. And therefore, we are naturally drawn to the good and the true and the beautiful. I had a student argue with me the other day about that. There are some people that are drawn to bad things. And I said, I would argue they are drawn to what they perceive as good in it. And he says, what do you mean? I said, have you ever fed an infant squash? You know, that Gerber squash or carrots. I don't know what it is about squash and carrots, but little kids do not like those flavors. I said, and you know, they're all, no. I said, if you ever do, wear an apron because as soon as you put it in your mouth, you're going to be wearing it. <laughs> now, did I have to tell my little nephew the first time I fed him carrots? He's now 21. He'd kill me if I told this story. He knew I was telling the story. But the first time I fed him carrots, first time he ever had them, <clears throat> and I, again, ruined a good tie. And so, I, it, I, did I have to tell him, now, if this tastes bad, spit it out. No, we naturally, you know, if we take a sip of like sour milk, do we have to tell ourselves, oh, this is sour. I really should not swallow it. No, we, we would gag if we tried to swallow because we naturally are revulsed by things that are bad, things that are not good. Um, I tell the boys all the time because we have an open campus and they can play soccer or throw the frisbee around in the courtyard if they have a free period. I said, you know, there's always that one guy that can't seem to remember where the agreed upon boundaries are, right? And he's always trying to get over on everybody. No, I was in bounds. That was a goal. And how, I go, did I have to tell, have to instruct all of you? When he does that, you should get upset. No, because he's cheating. And we don't like cheaters. We don't like being lied to. Nobody has to tell you to dislike being lied to. Nobody has to tell you to dislike cheaters. We are just naturally drawn to goodness, truth, and beauty. And Aquinas says certain things we encounter, we look, we are attracted to the good, and we are able to distinguish between good, better, and best because we're ultimately attracted to the best, and that is God. And the argument for governance, this is also a pretty good one, and one that we see in our own lives. Um, I, I, I have the boys wad up, you know, papers, you know, and, you know, the trash can is by the door. You can see it from the hallway. And I said, you know, I have them all throw the, try to make a basket from their seat. I said, now imagine if, you know, imagine if, you know, the principal walked by while he sees all these wads of paper flying through the air in my classroom. Don't you think he might stop to investigate? And they were like, yeah. I said, why? He's going to want to know who threw it. And I said, well, don't pieces of paper just naturally fly through the air by themselves? 
heading to a trash can, obviously an attempt to make its way into the bucket? And they go, no, that's silly. I said, no, it, you're absolutely correct. When things that have no mind, no energy, no way of propelling themselves, no intelligence, move in a way that is intelligent, we know that they have been acted upon by an outside force which is. And so he naturally knows somebody is throwing paper in that room because wads of paper don't just wad themselves up and make a trajectory to the trash can on their own. We look around the world and we see that the world makes sense. You know, gravity works the same today as it always has. There's no reason why it should, but it does. The sun always comes up in the east and goes down in the west. There's no reason why it should, but it does. Science has helped us to understand these things because the earth spins on its axis at a regular rate. Why? That speed, why not a few miles faster or a few miles slower, but it spins at a pretty consistent speed. It tilts at a pretty consistent angle and it moves around the sun at a very consistent rate. So much so that we're able to do science. If this were unpredictable or unintelligible, science could not happen. And so Aquinas, even with the science of his day, looked at the world and says, it operates like a clock. Can you have a clock without a clockmaker? You can't. And this is the argument from gov governance, that events that occur by chance happen randomly. Events that are ordered by intelligence, such as the motion of the planets around the sun, fit into patterns and form comprehensive wholes. So therefore, there are objects which lack intelligence, like sun, moon, and stars, which appear to follow a regular pattern. This regularity cannot be by chance, but instead must be governed by some intelligent being. Now, there's some modern philosophers who will say, and believe me, I had to take a statistics class this summer so I can argue the statistics as well as they can. Oh, my God, I never want to take statistics again. Um, and well, it's very sad. My professor had to withdraw halfway through. So the university was reluctant, you know, hesitant to get us a new professor or delayed. And so we basically ended up having to teach it to ourselves. Thank God for YouTube videos. But anyhow, and a good textbook. We had a good textbook. So there are modern uh, statisticians will say, well, if given enough chances, anything is possible. That if, you know, the Big Bang happens and it happens in such a way in which, you know, it ha explodes at such a rate where, you know, if it was any faster, the gases wouldn't have been able to slow down and, you know, coalesce. If it had happened any slower, it wouldn't escape the gravity and would come back in on a big crash. But it happened just the way. Well, given enough chances, it could happen randomly. Well, there was a guy who figured up the statistics on the universe coming together just as it is by random chance. And he said, using 10-point font, those of us of a certain age will know what 10-point font is, because we can't read it anymore. Uh, so <clears throat> if you were, to t you were to type 10 point font, it would be one with enough zeros to one after it, with enough zeros to circle our universe. 
Now, is it possible? Statistically speaking, yes. Is it probable? Highly not. In fact, there's a greater probability of a hurricane going through a junkyard and assembling a fully functional 747. Is it possible? Oh yeah, anything's possible. Is it probable? No. But it's far more probable of that than the universe coming to, and the universe is far more complex than a 747. So, um, what I'd like to do, talk a, bit, a little bit about as defining how we get to revelation and again tying this back into theology. But I think it's important to know the proper relationship between science and reason, which is the realm of philosophy, and revelation, which is the realm of theology. Science, we live in a very scientific-minded age, and that's not a bad thing. Science has taught us a lot. We've come to rely on science a lot in combating diseases, especially over the last 20 months or so. And of course, we have to weed through what's science and what's, you know, not science. But science, what is science? Science is a way of measuring the world around us. Science is very good at measuring, observing, measuring, whether it be through our own vision or through instruments like microscopes and telescopes that help us to observe things we can't see with our unaided eye. And through this systematic observation, we get to know nature and the laws that govern it very well. But science is limited. By definition, science is limited to what is observable. If you can't observe it, you can't do science on it. Um, I, I love to tell this story. Mary's heard it before, and she's so kind to listen to it over and again. One time I was on a plane someplace, and, and I usually don't tell people what I do on a plane because I know how the conversation's going to go. It's like, a, like I can follow the flow chart, right? Hi, what do you do? I'm a teacher. Oh, what do you teach? Theology. Oh, let me tell you my theory about the life, the universe, and everything, which is usually very much uninformed. And, and I get to hear people's, you know, and I say, no, that's a heresy that was, you know, defeated in the 14th century at the Council of Florence. But you know, if you want to talk about that, I can tell you. But no, they think, you know, so... I usually tell people if I'm, if I'm really I'm not in my best mood, you know, I'm a welder because most people don't have any questions of a welder, you know, about <laughs> except sports or something like that. So anyhow, I was talking to this guy and of course I made the mistake of saying I'm a theology teacher. Oh, well, I'm a man of science um, as if the theologians are not people of science, you know, some of the best. Some of the best scientists in history, the guy who discovered the Big Bang was a Catholic priest, by the way. Uh, and so when you tell people that, it's just like, does not compute, does not compute. You know? um, and so he said, I don't believe in anything I can't see or prove. And I said, well, that's very sad. And he says, what do you mean? I said, you don't believe your parents love you. And he goes, what do you mean you don't believe? I don't believe. He goes, of course my parents love me. I said, prove it. He says, well, they, they gave birth to me, they clothed me, they sent me to the best schools, they paid for my college, and when I got out of college, they helped me get set up in my business that's very successful. And I said, that does not prove your parents love you. I said, all that proves to me is your parents are very selfish people. 
what do you mean? I said, I have a feeling that they were secretly very lazy. So what they figured is for a few years, maybe 18, 20, 24 years, they would invest in you so they could retire and you could support them. And he goes, that's not why they did. I said, the evidence you gave me proves my conclusion just as much as yours. So if you only want to go by what you can prove, you better come up with something better for how much your parents love you or why your parents love you. I said, so science is, it cannot judge how much love is in this room. It's just there's no measuring scale for it. What are we going to call it? I mean, if somebody discovers a way to do it, I'd love to see it. But science, our dependence on science and over-dependence on science can lead us to the false corollary that everything is measurable by science. By definition, Aristotle, Plato said, there are things that are outside the natural realm, therefore outside the realm of science. And this can lead us to this mistaken belief that if it can't be measured, it's not real. But this is where reason comes in. Reason builds on science. Most people think that they're doing science when they're actually doing reason. Because once we take what we have observed, we start asking questions. Hmm, I wonder what this data is really saying. Now we're starting to go beyond the science and getting into reason. I like to use the example in my classroom of if, you know, I put my few of my students in the role of an emergency room doctor. And I said, and then get another student to lie unconscious on the floor, which usually doesn't take them long. And so I said, just lay there and just don't do anything for about 10 minutes while we talk. And I said, okay, this guy has been brought into your emergency room. What are you going to do? Uh, I take his, uh, I take his pulse. Good job. I take his temperature. Good job. Uh, and so if you get a really bright student, uh, maybe do a talk screening on him, you know, draw some blood, see if there's any alcohol in his system, drugs in his system, um, like that. Check his body for any contusions or wounds, you know, see if like, you know, it, whatever. And so, yeah, I said, that's what you, what are you doing? You're collecting data. You're, you're weighing him, you're measuring him, you're doing all sorts of tests on him. That's the science. And then, of course, I usually tell them what the results are. Now, what do you do next? We start figuring out why he might be unconscious. Well, it shows in his tox screen that he doesn't have any toxins in his system, but we do see this giant bruise on the back of his head. Maybe he got knocked over. One kid this week said, I would ask the paramedics where they found him. I said, that's a really good question. They found him under a bridge under 59. And of course, they're looking at him and they get some you know, perplexed looks on their face. I said, why, why do you got this perplexed looks? He's wearing like khaki pants and a nice button down shirt and like shoes that cost like 120 bucks. That's not the usual person you find unconscious under a bridge. And I said that you're using good reason now. What are you speculating? That's not where he lives. Do you have any science to prove that? No, but you had good reason to believe it, right? So you see how we observe and then we use reason. Reason goes beyond what science can do. And I say to the students at that point, but what is it using science and reason that you cannot possibly know? And somebody said his name, his birthday if anybody is missing him right now. 
Is he in love? You know, those are the kind of things that no test that you can run. We can speculate all we want. I go, what do you need to happen in order to learn these things? These things that are most intimate about him. What do you have to know? Well, he has to wake up and talk to us. I said, exactly. That's revelation. Aristotle and Plato were able to come up with the idea that there must be one powerful being out there that's the cause and the mover of everything that exists, but they couldn't name him. Aquinas could because he had the benefit of divine revelation. This word revelation is a beautiful word. It literally means to remove the veil. I love the still that we have the tradition when a bride comes down the aisle with her father, her father figure, and he lifts her veil to present her to her husband-to-be as if he is revealing her for the first time. It's a beautiful tradition. And he's basically saying, I'm uncovering this precious treasure of mine and I'm passing along you know, the responsibility for loving her to you. And it's a beautiful tradition. Well, God lifts the veil. And you look at the things um, that we veil in the church. Uh, those of you uh, who may not have seen the tabernacle, most tabernacles, when it's opened up, the, that's the box where we keep, you know, the golden box where we keep the reserved blessed sacrament. When it's opened up, most tabernacles have a veil. It's like a little curtain that you pull aside and that's the, the blessed sacrament resides behind the veil. Moses, after talking to God, would veil his face. Uh, women in the church traditionally have worn veils, not because they are subservient. Hardly. It was a statement about their dignity as women, because women have a capacity in their bodies for something that men cannot do, bear children. There's a tabernacle within them where new life grows. And we honor that by, you know, men, if you want to look at it the proper way, men aren't allowed to wear veils in church. Women have the, you know, get that privilege. We don't because there's no place in our body where a fetus can grow into a human, right? And be, you know, new life can grow. And so God lifts the veil off of himself and lets us see him. That's an amazing thing. God, the creator of the universe, makes himself known to us. And so as humans, we ask that question. Why? Why would God do that? Why would God lower himself so much as to let us see behind the veil? And there's only one answer. He loves us. And he wants us to come to knowledge of him that we could not have otherwise for the purpose of becoming in a relationship with us. And that's how we achieve the ultimate goal for which we were created, to, be, to love God, to serve God, to know God in this life and the next. That's our whole reason for existing. And with God lifting that veil, there's two types of revelation. Some things that God reveals to us are things that we've already figured out. There must be one of him. He must have 
always existed. He must be all-powerful. Plato and Aristotle figure that one out. So when he reveals himself as all-powerful and eternal and all-loving, well, all-loving, they didn't quite figure out. That backs up what we've already, already kind of figured out. But there are certain things that he reveals that we have no way of figuring out otherwise. And that is that he loves us, that he is Trinity. That had to be revealed to us because even after it's revealed, we don't really understand it. And we have spent centuries trying to explain it. You know, so you're saying that there's like three gods. No, that's not what we're saying. It's, it's one God, three persons. So, so it's this one God that kind of operates like you know, he puts on his father hat when he's creating and he puts on his son hat when he comes down to redeem us and he puts on his sanctifier hat at Pentecost. No, that's not what we mean either. We mean three distinct persons in one God. Are you sure you're not making this up? I, who could make this stuff up? Nobody could make this stuff up. It had to be revealed to us. We have hints of it all throughout the Old Testament. Let us make man in our image, in the divine image. He made them male and female. He made them. Who's God talking to? The angels? We're not made in the angel's image. We're made in God's image. We see that the three visitors that come to Abraham... You know, and we find out later, he thinks they're just strangers, find out they're angels. Why did God send three? Or when we talk about the Holy Spirit being upon the prophets or the Holy Spirit descending upon the kings and the judges. They just thought that was just kind of the generic spirit of God. No, this is the Holy Spirit. That that voice of, that speaks to Moses in the burning bush or through the burning bush is the voice of Jesus Christ. He is the human voice of God. Think about that. And so this is why we know that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all together there from the beginning, active in every aspect of creation, redemption, and sanctification. Because it's impossible to separate the acts of one from the other. And so God reveals himself to us. And then he does something even more. You know, there's, you know, there's, there's this wonderful scene in Monty Python, you know, search for the Holy Grail, when Arthur is trying to explain how he is the king, even though no one voted for him, right? And he says, I'm going to butcher the quote, but he says, the lady of the lake, her arm clad in the shiniest of Samite, held aloft Excalibur signifying that I, Arthur, was to be king of all the Britons. And the people that he's explaining it to are not buying it. Listen, some lady lying in a pond distributing swords is no basis for government. All right? And he goes on to, you know, say that, you know, true executive power derives a mandate from the masses and all this. Well, who's to say somebody didn't just make this stuff up? How do we know that what has been revealed, what the church guards and preserves and passes along to every generation is truly from God and not just, you know, somebody in Rome writing this stuff up or Peter, James and John sitting down saying, OK, the guy's dead now. We got to come up with a, a, a sales stick that we can, you know, like sell because we can't go back to fishing. 
Well, God gives us what we call motives of credibility, which is a kind of a clunky term, I'll, I'll admit. But a motive of credibility is simply this. It's a reason to believe that the message comes from God rather than human beings. And the largest motive of credibility that we have is miracles. Jesus worked miracles to prove that he was who he said he was. I love the scene where they lower the paralytic through the roof. I always wondered, you know, did Jesus like help with that? The carpenter skills repairing the roof afterwards? Uh, Gospels don't tell us that. I guess we can speculate. But they lower the paralytic. And what does Jesus say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven. And of course, the Pharisees there lose their minds. How can this man forgive sins? Only God has the power to forgive sins. And Jesus knows their thoughts. And he says to them, what's easier to say to this guy? Your sins are forgiven or pick up your mat and walk. Well, obviously, the answer to that question is your sins are forgiven. Who can prove it? Who can disprove it? Right? Just like I can say, guy, I had, I had breakfast with the Lord this morning and he wanted me to tell Mary to make me, you know, the new, you know, bishop or something. Yeah, you know, well, you know, Mary says, well, that's funny, Tommy. I had lunch with the Lord and, you know, and he told me differently, you know, <laughs> who's going to prove that? It's easy to say something that can't, doesn't have no outward sign. So Jesus gives the outward sign. He says, so you will know that the Son of Man has the power to forgive sins. In other words, you're talking to God right here. I speak with God's authority that I have the power to forgive sins. I will say the harder thing, pick up your mat and walk. And the guy picks up his mat and he walks. And they're all astonished, right? Jesus works the miracles, not for some show, um, but to give proof to what he's saying is from God. These miracles happened in the Old Testament. We got, you know, Elijah and the widow. Kind of a foreshadowing of the loaves and the fishes where the flour and the oil don't run out for three years. All right. And so that's a miracle showing that Elijah really truly was a prophet from God. He wasn't just some crazy guy spouting a lot of things and claiming they were from God. We see these miracles carried on through the, through the apostles. Love the scene in Acts of the Apostles. It's almost a parallel of a scene in the gospel where Jesus heals a cripple guy, except for one slight change. The guy's crippled. He's sitting there outside the temple and he looked and he's begging for money. And Peter and John come up to him and, and Peter looks at him intently. And the man thinks, okay, he's going to give me something. And Peter says, I don't have any silver or gold to give you, but what I do have, I do give you. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise and walk. Jesus said, rise and walk, because he spoke on his own authority. Notice when the miracles in the, in the New Testament happen and the apostles worked them, they always add that, I'm speaking with the authority that Jesus handed on to me. In the name of Christ, walk. We even have this today in our church ministers, whenever they administer the sacraments. I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Not, not Father John baptizing you. This is, this is Christ baptizing you through the work of the minister. For those of you that have not been to reconciliation yet, 
Um, there's a beautiful prayer of reconciliation that we Catholics get from the priest when after we confess our sins, where the priest basically says, you know, God, the father of mercies through the death and resurrection of his son has sent the Holy Spirit into the world for the forgiveness of sins. Through the ministry of the church, may God grant you pardon and peace. And I absolve you from your sins in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He even recognizes this power is not coming from me. It's coming through me. And the power is God. And so these miracles were proofs that this message, this revelation came from God. It was not of human origin. We also have prophecies. Uh, if you read Matthew's gospel. The first couple of chapters are chuck full of Matthew quoting prophet after prophet after prophet and how Jesus's birth and early life fulfills all those Old Testament prophecies. We know a prophecy is true when it happens. It's a self verifying motive of credibility. And so Matthew goes on to say it's not just one little prophecy, it's all the prophecies that he would have a virgin birth. Isaiah, that he would be born in Bethlehem, Micah, all right, that there would be a time when women would be lamenting the deaths of their children. This is referring to the innocent, you know, the slaughter of the innocent. And I mean, he just keeps hammering it home. Later on, when you get to the, have you all done the Bible study yet or the way the Bible's laid out? We know that all four Gospels, there's a read why all four Gospels, Matthew is written to an audience of Jewish people who have become Christian. And so you can understand why he's quoting Old Testament prophet after Old Testament prophet to verify for these Jewish people now Christian that, yes, this is what we've been hearing about when we've studied Torah, when we've studied the prophets, that this man fulfilled all those prophecies, giving us good reason to believe it's of God and not of not of humans. And of course, a good third uh, motive of credibility is the life of the church itself. That the church has grown and prospered wildly despite persecution over centuries. That it is spread out to every continent, every culture, every person. That this is something for everybody, not just a select few. All right, not just, you know, this particular church over here under this pastor, but for everybody. And there has been, for every example of you can give me for a corrupt church leader, and trust me, we've had our fair share. I can give you three examples of people who have exhibited incredible holiness, incredible holiness. Mother Teresa, St. Francis, just to name two. And... In spite of the fallibility of our leaders sometimes, who have not always been the best example of a Catholic or even a Christian, we've remained true to the message. I remember being very scandalized when I started to do church history and learning about some of those medieval popes were doing. Holy smoke. I mean, they had illegitimate children and they had mistresses and to hide it, they would like appoint him a bishop of a prosperous monastery, thus in, you know, and I was like, my gosh, this is terrible. And my teacher very wisely saw my frustration and said, notice they never tried to change the teaching to accommodate their sinfulness. They had to hide it. They knew what they were doing was wrong. There was not a problem with the teaching. There was a problem with people living up to the ideal that, that Christ calls us to. 
And so whenever I feel myself being scandalized even by stuff going on today, I notice that the church still teaches that adultery is wrong. The church still teaches that stealing is wrong. The church still teaches us to go to church on Sunday, to not use God's name in vain, to keep him first in our life. All the Ten Commandments. Nothing has been compromised or gotten an addendum on. As I tell my students, you know, Jesus says, love, love others as you would have them love you, unless they're a jerk. You know, he doesn't add that, nor has the church added that, right? All right. No, he says, love others, period. And the church still holds true to that. And that's why I kind of find it funny when people try to pigeonhole the church into, like, conservative or liberal or libertarian. We're Catholic. And so, therefore, we're going to fall on some issues where people are going to think, man, that's real liberal. And some people say, oh, that's real conservative or that's that's really kind of libertarian. No, it's Catholic. And that's what we try to be is Catholic. And so we have the divine revelation backed up by these motives of credibility. And then God invites us to say yes. Now, Jesus is famous for saying no one can come to me, you could probably finish it for me, unless the Father first calls him. In other words, no one comes to Christ unless God initiated the call. You're in this room because God called you. And you're saying, yes, I want to learn more. I want to learn more about this, this faith, this God, this teaching, because God has revealed it. He's given us motives of credibility, and we call that call a grace. God gives us grace. In the Catholic Church, in Catholic theology, whenever you heard, hear that word grace, think gift. Not reward, not payment, but gift. A gift is freely given because the giver wants to give it. Not because you've earned it, not because you even deserve it. As I tell my students, if I see one of my students helping, you know, somebody carry a heavy box across campus, one of the, like, one of the assistants or something, I might, you know, give him a free lunch card and say, good job, that's a reward. Or if somebody mows my grass, I pay them, that's payment. A gift is a free gift. You didn't earn it, I just want to give it to you. But gifts can be rejected. I can give you a gift and you can say, I don't want anything from you. I said, but really, take it. It's free. What's the catch? Nothing. Just take it. And I, I can't really even force him because he could just give it to somebody else or throw it in the trash can on the way out. So God asks us, gives us this gift, this invitation, and he puts it in our hands because he's not going to force us to say yes. He wants us to love him of our own free will. The greatest homily I ever heard, because it sticks with me 20 years later, it was also one of the shortest homilies. It was the first Sunday of Advent. Priest got up. Christmas, Advent, Christmas in four weeks. Have you ever thought about what you would get Jesus for Christmas? Get him something he can't get for himself. And he just paused. We're like, well, what could Jesus not get for himself? And he says, get something that Jesus could not get for himself. Your obedience. Jesus will not take that from us. We have to give it. All right, let's wrap this up with 
a little recap of theology and philosophy. Saint Anselm, great saint, defined theology as faith-seeking understanding. I believe, but I want to understand it. Because we have these things presented before us, this revelation, these reasons to believe this is from God, the grace. We say yes, but then we are constantly learning more. I've been at this theology thing teaching it for 30 years now. That's hard to believe. All right? I never thought I'd ever work one job for 30 years, right? And I'm still learning. I'm still learning and diving deep into that. And as we learn, God gives us more grace and increases our capacity to know him better. The worst thing we can do is to stop learning in our faith. I always admire the, the, the adult leaders who are Catholic who are part of the RCIA team because you look at yourselves as lifelong learners of the faith. You know, it's not like, you know, you get to confirmation or baptism, Eucharist confirmation, I'm done. Got my, got my card, got my pass. Now all I got to do is check in once a week at church. We should always be reading our Bible. We should always be studying. We should always be looking at the catechism, trying to learn more. I don't have time to tell the whole story, but, you know, Mary's heard this story before, too. I was in Oxford, and, you know, we, I was there doing some research, and my friends were there, and they introduced me to some of their friends who were professors at Oxford one night we were having dinner and maybe a couple of too many, you know, adult beverages and people's lips were a little looser than they probably should have been. And when one of the guys said, you know, I used to be a Catholic, but when I was about third grade, I realized it was just a bunch of bullshit. So I went through and I got all my sacraments, but, you know, once my parents were in control of me, you know, I, I just, you know, I left it all behind because it was just a bunch of BS. I said, Really? I said, what do you teach? English. I said, you know, I used to like English a lot. And then in third grade, I realized it was just all bullshit. And so I took my English classes and wrote the papers, but I realized it was just a bunch of bullshit. And I looked at the other one. What do you teach? Math? Okay, math, yeah. You know, I used to like math too, but in third grade, I realized that it was a bunch of bullshit and I just stopped. And I, they all reacted the way you did. They all started laughing. I said, we would find it humorous that somebody thought that they knew everything about math, science, history by third grade. But, some, you know, but somehow when somebody says, well, I had philosophy and theology figured out in third grade, you know, the reaction everybody at the table was like, oh, wow, that is so, that is so prescient. At third grade, you had that all figured out. And I'm like, no, he's an idiot. I didn't say that. But <laughs> I said... It's a sad case. This guy is held back in his education and the things that are most fundamental in life. You know, like I said, I've been at this 30 years and I still feel like I'm a fledgling at it. If I were to quit now, I would, I would be sad for me. So we have got to be lifelong learners in the faith. We've always got to have that curiosity. The thing is, if we give God this much, he's never going to be outdone in generosity. He always opens our mind to a deeper understanding. And so this is why it's important that we take time not only to study it, but take this study to prayer. Bring God into it. When you read the scriptures, say to God, God, open my mind and my heart so that I can truly hear your word in these passages that I will read. 
this is a wonderful way of reading Scripture. Uh, I can read the same passage a hundred times, and I guarantee I will get a hundred different meanings from it, depending on where I'm at. No other book has ever been like that for me. That I can read, it never gets old. It's always fresh, it's always new. As St. Augustine called God, oh, beauty ever ancient, ever new. And that's the way God is. So, let's go ahead and uh, I'll wrap up with one small little story about the rich young man and Jesus. The one thing about theology, it's not just about following rules. That's important, but it's not everything. The rich young man comes up to Jesus and he says, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now remember, this is a Jewish man, 692 laws. You had to follow them all perfectly to get to heaven. And Jesus says, well, what does the commandments tell you? And he says, you know, and Jesus answers the question, honor your father, your mother, do not kill, do not commit adultery. And he lists several others. And the rich young man looks at Jesus right in the eye and he says, all of these I have followed since I was a kid. That is a good kid. I could not look into Jesus' eyes and say, I've followed all of these since I was a kid. <clears throat> and it says, Jesus, looking at him with love, says, go sell everything you own, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. Do you realize what Jesus is saying? He wants him to be an apostle. He didn't tell everybody to follow him when he healed the demoniac. He says, the demoniac says, let me follow you because these people are rejecting me. He says, no, you go back and tell everybody everything that God has done for you. Not everybody got called to follow in that special group. And it says the rich man walked away sad because he had many possessions. Now, Jesus is not condemning wealth, which is what most people interpret this. The best way to interpret this, in my opinion, is that the rich young man has followed all the laws and he realized there's something there's something more than just rule following. It's about giving everything, your heart, to Jesus. Giving everything to him. Now, for the rich young man, he was too attached to his possessions to let go of them and let Jesus in. And put Jesus in that first place spot. So we have to constantly ask ourselves and ask God to open our eyes. What is it that's keeping me from putting you as number one? I have to ask myself that question every day. Is it, you know, I want to retire one day to a hill country house and just be able to sit back and, you know, relax every day and not get up at 4.30 in the morning? Is that what I'm really putting first? Or am I saying, God, if that's in your plan for me, fine. If not, if I work till I die, then I work till I die. But what is it that's keeping me from putting God first? Yes, rules are important, but putting God first and following him and putting nothing in the way is also just as important. Let's close with a prayer. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Again, this is uh, a prayer attributed to St. Ignatius of Loyola. Soul of Christ, sanctify me. Body of Christ, save me. Blood of Christ, inebriate me. Water from the side of Christ, wash me. Passion of Christ, strengthen me. O good Jesus, hear me. Within your wounds, hide me. Separated from you, let me never be. From the malignant enemy, defend me. In the hour of my death, call me. And bid me come to you 
that with your saints I may praise you forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay. Yeah, if y'all have some questions, I'll be happy to answer some questions for you. I kept banging the podium. I'm sorry, your tape recorder is probably going to freak out. Bad habit of a speaker. Yes? I was curious about you said that a Catholic priest had discovered the big bang. Yeah. I was curious about science and theology and struggle. Yeah. The very short version of the story is that Albert Einstein was very reluctant to believe in an expanding universe. Because if the universe is expanding, it means by definition it had an origin. Because if you run time backwards and it collapses, it can't collapse forever. It has to have a starting point. And Einstein was sold on this idea of a static universe. The problem is that when he had his general theory of relativity, the math didn't add up. Well, there was a, an astronomer, a Catholic priest called Father Lemaitre. I forget his first name, maybe Jean or something like that, but it's Lemaitre. And he says, you know, Albert, I've made, your universe, I've made your general theory of relativity work. The math works perfectly if the universe is expanding. And Albert Einstein looked at the math and said, you're absolutely correct, but I can't buy into an expanding universe. Then a guy whose name you may be familiar with, Hubble, ran an observatory in California and discovered that the universe truly was expanding. And so it was Lemaitre that first suggested that the universe is expanding. And therefore, it had an origin. And at some point, it all had to go off, the Big Bang. So he was the one that came up with the math. And, and, and Einstein said, I have to submit to the evidence. The universe is expanding. The math works. The universe must have had a beginning. Yeah, at some point. Yeah, pretty interesting. That was the, the little quick Reader's Digest version of it. Any other questions? Yes, sir. I think humans, I, I, I hope I said, humans have a natural desire for what they perceive as being good. Okay. All right. So like um, we're naturally drawn towards goodness and truth and beauty. Now, what happens to somebody who is like addicted to drugs or something, right? Um, you say, are they, you know, that's something bad. But right now they are not saying, hey, I'm going to get addicted to heroin because it's going to tear apart my body, ruin my bank account, make me lose all my friends and probably kill me. What they're saying is they're pursuing the high that they get. And so that's all they can see. And of course, addiction comes to play in there. And that can be anything from you know, uh, alcohol, pornography, money, you know, there's, you know, we, we, we perceive the good, but it's a limited good. And so we're always acting towards what we perceive to be the good. Exactly. But we're bad at what Sometimes we're bad at discerning, which is why it helps to have like advisors, you know, parents, uh, mentors, priests, uh, especially in things spiritual. Um, if you're going to want to grow spiritually, uh, and I can tell you from experience, uh, having gone many years without one, a spiritual director is crucial in helping you grow spiritually. 
because a spiritual director can listen to like you say, okay, well, how's your prayer been like? I don't know. It's been kind of dry. I've been, you know, well, well, tell me how you pray. Well, I get up in the morning and I do this and, you know, I do this and I'll go to mass and blah, blah, blah. And what a spiritual director's main job is to listen. And they listen to kind of the threads that run through and they can help you be a more objective observer in your own life. Uh, just the way a career counselor may look at you and, and say, you know, you're working this job right now. Are you happy with it? You know, you say, well, no, but it pays the bills. Well, what are you really passionate about? You know, and then they might be able to help you discern maybe a job that can also pay the bills, but you're really excited about doing. Does that make sense? And that's why God gave us other people, too. Uh, we, we can't always do it all on our own. Yeah. So, similarly, are we repulsed by evil? I think we are naturally repulsed by things that are evil. Um, uh, bad food, bad people, you know, bad situations, uh, bad health. Nobody likes being sick, you know. Um, and so, yeah, I think we are naturally, we're naturally uh, try to avoid things that we perceive as being bad. This is where it kind of gets funny in some of the great mystics of the church who embrace suffering. That doesn't mean they liked it, but they saw the greater good from it. Like you, Padre Pio, whose feast day is tomorrow. Uh, he had the stigmata, the wounds of Christ for 50 years. And... Somebody asked him one time, hey, father, do those hurt? He says, well, they're not decorations. You know, uh, they hurt him every day. He felt the passion of Christ every day. Did he, if you had asked him, he would have probably said deep down inside, if God wanted this to go away, that I would accept that tomorrow. But he accepted that this was God's will for him and that the suffering, whenever God allows for suffering or pain of any sort to enter our life, it's always for a greater good, not for the suffering itself. That um, just the way parents sacrifice and give up things that they need for the betterment of their children. Um, that I undergo this because I realize there's a greater good that, that's, that's going to come from it. Yeah. Good question. Both. All these really good questions. Yes, sir. Yeah, yeah. Is that linked essentially that we seek good, but because we're in this fallen state, we don't have the innate perception of it that we would. Yeah, that you're very perceptive. Yes, with with because of original sin that we inherit, you know, through our first parents, our intellect and will become clouded. That's the way the church usually describes it, as cloud. They don't function properly. It's like think about you're on a foggy night. And you're trying to find, you know, in a boat, trying to find the right port, you know, and you might see a glimpse of a, a lighthouse every so often. It's kind of guiding you in the right direction, but you can't see very clearly. Um, our intellect was always supposed to control our passions, right? Man, I really want to punch that guy in the face right now after what he just said to me. But usually our intellect will say, yeah, but I really don't want to start a fight right now, right? Well, what happens if we know those people who 
their emotions, they just give into their emotions at all. We do that to a greater or lesser degree. We allow our passions, our emotions, the, the heat of the moment, as it were, to control our better judgment. And we understand this because after we do the things we don't want to do, we say, gosh, what was I thinking? Well, we weren't. We were acting out of our emotions. We weren't thinking or we weren't thinking properly. And so that's another w reason why, again, because sort of like my answer to him, it helps to be able to talk to somebody objectively. Uh, I work at a high school with boys. And so we deal with a lot of boys that have pornography addictions. And one of the things we tell them is that when you're feeling tempted, which is it's just as addictive as a drug, call a friend. Talk about anything. Talk about the Astros. Talk about, you know, your homework assignment. Get your mind off of it so that your intellect can kind of get back in control of your passions. And just by talking to that one other person and getting distracted long enough for your, your, your emotions to kind of settle down, you reach that equilibrium that got out of balance. Does that make sense? And so we're constantly needing to strive what is the good, what is the true, what is the beautiful. For sure. Yeah. Okay. You were talking about our um, like degrees of perfection. Yeah. And like I, I try a, a Domino's cheese pizza and it just pales in comparison to what I imagined. And it's like the ultimate Italian whatever. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and like I can look at the I can look at an example of a table and have some concept in my mind of what a table is. Mm -hmm. And that's how I relate. Okay, that's a table because it lines up sort of with what I see as a table. Yeah. So there's some distortion there for me between how I can conceptualize what God would be and recognize some sort of example of that. I was okay. I, I see what you're saying. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, it's hard to compare a pizza to God or a table to God. Or, or, yeah. I, I understand the slice of pizza is a representation of that image in our mind, mm -hmm. but I can't. It's hard for me to see a representation of the ultimate example yeah. of God. That's, that's what yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I guess, and I probably should explain this a little bit better. When we're talking about comparing pizzas or tables or whatever, we're, we're perceiving the quality of goodness that is in them. Okay, so the virtue of goodness, whether that's a good pizza, a good dog, a good right. table, a good sunset. You know, that we, you know, some, some of them just reach out and say, that, that sunset was gorgeous, you know, and that there's, it's the goodness that we're perceiving. And what we're saying is that goodness has its ultimate source in God. Because God is the source of all good, all truth, all beauty. And of course, you know, with God, he knows that we're human beings. We're, we're, we're material as much as we are spiritual. And so it helps us to have these tangible things that we can see and taste and touch and feel. And, and so this is why one of the primary reasons why he took on our human nature. One, so that he could really, truly be one with us. But that even though we don't get to see Jesus visibly in the flesh today, we, he leaves behind the Eucharist, right? So that we have the real presence of Jesus with us. That I can go to adoration and I can see him. I can go to mass and receive him. 
Um, and so he does leave us these things. And notice all the sacraments have some sort of material component to it that satisfies this need that we have to be able to put our hands on something. You know, whether that be bread and wine or oil and, or water and baptism. Uh, these are, and so our faith has always been kind of an incarnate faith as well. Does that, that help answer the question a little bit? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. 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 Very good. Uh huh. That's a very good question. Uh, and remember, I, I gotta, I gotta speak up. Adam was right there with her. You know, <laughs> you know, humanity fell through man and a woman, and it's redeemed through man and a woman. Mary said yes, which made Jesus's yes in the garden possible. But. And the quick answer that is the cheap answer that I will give you and then give you my real answer. Um, in theology, we don't deal with hypotheticals. Uh, no, uh, we, we do, we, but we really don't know. Um, there's all sorts of ink that has been spilled on this. I tend, now, there's no definitive church teaching on this. But it's, oh, it's my opinion from the authors that I've read and the theologians I've studied that it was always in God's plan to be in union with his creation. That the incarnation would have happened, but it would have taken a much different form. Uh, now, that's not the Thomistic view. That's not the Thomistic view at all. So I vary from Thomas there, and it takes a lot of guts to vary from Aquinas. But um, that Adam and Eve... The garden wasn't the end-all and be-all in God's plan. Um, that they would have lived a natural life, perhaps died, and at the moment of their death, like Our Lady, glorified and brought to heaven. And, and somehow, you know, I don't know. But it's a, it's a very good question, and many theologians have spent a lot of time. I don't want to go too far on my personal speculations and lapse into heresy either. So, But I think that... Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so... Like I said, I'm here to teach you what the church teaches. Thomas Aquinas, on the other hand, says, if it weren't for the fall, there would be no incarnation. And so this is why at the Easter we say, oh, oh happy fault of Adam that Meredith says so great a savior. That had Adam and Eve not fallen, there would be no reason for God to have become incarnate to save us. All right. So that is that would be more official church teaching. All right, so we can rejoice not because they sinned, but because God was able to bring great good out of it. Just like we can't rejoice over the fact that Jesus got crucified, but it's his crucifixion that saved us from our sins and his subsequent resurrection that gave us open the doors of heaven for new life. Does that make sense? Okay, last one. Thank you, Tommy. I've got the exalted burning. <laughs> <laughs> good. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The saints are wonderful examples. I, I highly encourage you to get a book of the saints and read like a saint a day. You're going to find a few that you latch on to and really identify with. And I've had several throughout the years. Thomas More is a big one for me. Um, you know, and sometimes, you know, I'm driving in my car and I'm just wondering, what would Thomas... 
you know, Thomas More, think about like a modern vehicle traveling at 70 miles an hour down the freeway, you know, it, you know, and sometimes having these little mental conversations with him as, I, as I'm commuting back and forth to work. So, uh, yeah, so look at the saints. They're good examples. All right. Thank you so much. Great questions. I don't think we've ever had this many questions, but that was awesome. Yeah. All right, well, we've already prayed, so you guys are um, good to go. So what we'll do is next week, we'll start with the discussion about theology and philosophy. So I'll have some discussion questions for you. And here are some passages I put together awesome. that deal with theology and philosophy. He did, so. my, he did my homework for me. I've got scripture verses. Actually, would you like to take them home with you? Then I, can I only made 20, so I'm sorry about that. I didn't know what the size of the group would be. I'll see you next time. Okay, thanks. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Yeah, I'll see you soon. Okay. All right. All right. Okay. You're welcome. Yeah. Thank you.